we get started, I want to get you up to speed on the story of Nehemiah. It's a great story. If you missed the last couple of weeks, Nehemiah is a guy who was working in the heart of the Persian Empire. He was living more specifically in the capital city called Susa, and he's the cupbearer to the king. His home city was some distance away from there in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem has been in a state of ruin for the best part of 141 years. Most people have left, the city's abandoned, it's been ransacked, there's just a handful of people, a remnant, that have returned to Jerusalem to try and restore it all. Now the story begins when Nehemiah hears the latest update on the state of the city. And it's not great news. The walls are still broken down, the gates remain burnt, and the people are still in great trouble and disgrace. And this particular news leaves Nehemiah absolutely devastated. So he spends three or four months praying and fasting and seeking God. He's asking God, God, what do you want me to do about this? God, how could we make a difference to this? God, how could we rebuild this city and restore your people? And after three or four months of praying in this way and asking God what he should do, Nehemiah finally gets an opportunity to come before the king and ask him for help. And as we saw last time, it's a big ask. Nehemiah is asking the king to reverse 13 years of political policy and to not only allow the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, but also to underwrite the whole project as well. But miraculously, the king agrees. It's just a total work of God. God pulls off this phenomenal miracle. I guess about the same size as the one we're going to need to see if we're going to see change in our city today. So I want to suggest this is actually a hugely encouraging story for us as we seek to build something in our city that truly brings much glory to God. There's a tremendous amount that we can learn today from Nehemiah and how he went about rallying the people of God to transform their city. Now the point where we join the story today... Nehemiah has just travelled the thousand or so miles from Susa to Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 2 and verse 9. This is Nehemiah's personal diary, his personal journal, recording the events that happened. Verse 9, So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat, the Horonites, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard all about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem nonetheless, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night under cover of darkness with a few others. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem, There were no mounts, no horses with me, except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, 
but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard all about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Answer them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you've got no share in Jerusalem. You've got no claim or historic right to it. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests, they went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they then dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining sections, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanar. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, he repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshalam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, they made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles sadly wouldn't put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joyada, son of Pasea, the Meshalam, and Meshalam, son of Besodiah. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and their bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Malatia of Gibeon and Jadon of Meronoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, he repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, he made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphael, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, he repaired the next section. And adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattash, son of Hashbaniah, he made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Pehath-Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Shalem, son of Holohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, he repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zenoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. Great job, that one. The dung gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. 
The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Kolhoser, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-district of Beth-sur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Now, oh, thank you. The chapter goes on for another 16 verses. Who would like to hear them? No. No, no, no. We're going to stop reading there, because the first 16 verses, they give us a pretty clear picture of what's actually taking place here, and something of the tremendous diversity of the workers involved. But I want us to back up now, and I want us to consider, from everything we've just read, what exactly is it that we can learn from all of this about the way that God works in and through his people. What's the point of this passage? Because in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells us there that all Scripture, the whole of the Bible, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. So the book of Nehemiah, and the passage we've just been reading, isn't merely history. It's history that God wants us to hear. We're reading history that has lessons from God for us today. I guess, among other things, it shows us how God thinks and how God reacts It reveals to us something of what matters to God and how God responds to those who cry out to him and how God empowers those who give themselves to his priorities. I think we also see how the people of God should respond in times of crisis. We also learn how God's people should rise up together and be part of God's solution. And so there's much for us to learn here. But for the remainder of our time today... I want to just focus on three words. Three words that I think pretty much sum up what God is calling us to do in preparation for the work and the mission that he's got in store for us. The three words are inspection, inspiration, and mobilization. Inspection, inspiration, and mobilization. What happens when God stirs his people? Well, we see these three elements at work in this story. First of all, inspection. Nehemiah finally arrives in Jerusalem. He's been praying about this work, he's been planning for it, and now he's arrived. And he takes three days just to rest and recuperate after his long journey before beginning the whole inspection process. He's heard from others, some of the reports of the condition of Jerusalem, but now he needs to see the condition of the walls with his very own eyes. It's like, to begin the work effectively, he needs to be able to grasp for himself the magnitude of the problem that the people were facing here. Now I think there's a very important principle for us here. 
honestly inspecting the walls of the church is essential to strengthening the church. As we look to build the church here in our city, it is absolutely crucial that we give good attention to the strength of what we're building. Now, of course, the walls that we need to be concerned about aren't physical walls. I think we're pretty safe in this room right now. Uh, I think these are solid enough. We're not talking about physical walls here. The walls that we need to be more concerned about are the spiritual condition of the church. If you like, the lives that we're living, how we're applying the truth of God's Word to our lives, how we're conducting ourselves in the world. That's what we need to examine. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but in reality, inspecting the walls of the church, or more specifically, inspecting the walls of our own life, isn't such an easy thing to do. I mean, for starters, it can be very humbling. That's why a lot of the time it's a whole lot more fun inspecting someone else's wall. Because that's why a lot of Christians are experts at criticizing other churches. I mean, can't we just look at the church down the road and point out all of their weaknesses and all of their failings and all the things that they're doing wrong? And if we do turn the attention on this church, it's so much easier to inspect and criticize others than to turn that inspection on ourselves. And yet, if we're going to be people who are growing, who are being led by the Holy Spirit, who are submitting ourselves to God's Word, we must be willing to inspect the walls and acknowledge the weakness in our own lives. And I know it's challenging, but I want to ask you, are you willing to start walking the walls of your marriage, if you're married, or walking the walls of your parenting, if you've got kids, or walking the walls of the way you conduct yourself at work or at college? Are you willing to identify areas of weakness in yourself? Are you willing to recognize areas where maybe your choices and your decisions and your practices, whatever they may be, have maybe built something that's not quite as strong as God would like. Because if we're not willing to engage in this kind of humble inspection, then really our focus is more on self-preservation than on the glory of God. You know what? I'm praying that we as a church would be the kind of church that is so caught up with a passionate desire for God to be glorified that we don't mind so much our own glory being tarnished by admitting that maybe we've made some mistakes and having the humility to ask for help and let others in and, when necessary, repenting before God. You see, that is the power of the gospel that we believe and have been celebrating this morning. We could admit our mistakes. We can confess our sins because Jesus has paid for it all. We don't need to just keep on trying to justify ourselves because we're justified by grace, through faith 
in what Jesus has done for us. We don't have to keep pretending we're something we're not, putting on a mask when we come along on a Sunday so that people think we're really holy, but under the surface we know we're really not because ultimately it's not about our performance. It's all about Jesus' performance for us and his work on the cross is completely sufficient to cover all of our sin and present us acceptable before him. You see, if we come clean on areas where we're struggling, it's not like we're going to be condemned or kind of walloped or beaten with a big stick. Now there's mercy and there's forgiveness and there's love and there's acceptance and there's grace. But the moment we become more concerned about preserving our own reputation or defending our own actions, then we've made it more about us and not about the glory of Jesus. I want to underline, the church, this church, isn't about us. It's about Jesus. And because it's about him and his name, and his renown, and his glory, and his honour, then we need to be very quick to strengthen the walls where they've become weakened and compromised. Because his glory is at stake here. The other thing I just want to point out about Nehemiah's inspection is that he inspected with a view to building. That's an important thing, because you know something, there are a lot of people who are good at inspecting for the sake of merely inspecting. You know the kind of people I'm talking about, they're great at seeing all the problems, but they never actually step forward and say they want to be part of the solution. A whole lot of people around who are very critical of the church in general. Maybe they've been hurt in different ways in the past, and it's like they constantly carry that around with them. They've become disaffected with the church. They've lost vision for the church. They don't have the same passion for the church that Jesus does, the passion that caused him to lay down his life for the church. And so they kind of disengage. A lot of them just end up drifting away from the church altogether. Others attend but more with a view to gathering more and more evidence to support their disenchantment. It looks like they're kind of avidly taking notes about the preaching, but actually it's just all the things they don't agree with that they're going to blog about and criticise the church for. Trust that's not happening here today. Just want you to see, if your inspection isn't for the cause of building, then it's potentially destructive. What I want you to see from the example of Nehemiah here is that his inspection was all for the cause of gathering the people of God to change the situation for the better. I'm so grateful. There are so many people in the church here who regularly come up to me or one of the other leaders and point out things that are concerning them in the church, maybe areas of weakness that they've seen. But they do it from the perspective of, how can I help strengthen those areas? What can I do to help in this area? You see, it's not destructive, it's constructive. They're not just inspecting, they're wanting to help build the thing. And that was very much the motivation behind Nehemiah's inspection in this passage. Second word I want us to focus on is inspiration. Inspiration. You see, 
We can't just be left with a clear inspection of the problem. We also need the faith and the hope and courage that God can actually turn the situation around. And we see here how God provided this through the leadership of Nehemiah. He provided the inspiration that was needed to move the people to do something. He does the inspection and then he gathers all the people together. What a moment that must have been. I mean, the people are gathered there together. Here's this new guy who's just turned up in town. They don't really know what his agenda is. They've heard rumors about him kind of going off under cover of darkness and looking at the walls. What was it all about? What are his plans? They gather together and he lays out this seemingly impossible vision. Look at verse 17 again. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. He's saying, look guys, people are making fun of us. This doesn't just reflect badly on us, this actually harms the glory of God. We are God's people. Let's rebuild. In other words, Nehemiah doesn't just come along and tell them what they're doing wrong. He comes alongside them. He begins to identify with them. He doesn't say, see the troubles you are in. He says, see the troubles we're in. And he begins to communicate faith to them. It's like they slowly catch a vision of what could be. And they end up responding in verse 18. Come, let us start rebuilding. It's another one of those everybody moments that we talked about a couple of weeks back. They all rose to the challenge. Second half of verse 18. So they began this good work. Nehemiah couldn't do this by himself. The job, the task was way too big for one person to do. But together, they can begin to accomplish something great. And I believe it's the same for us today. We all need to participate in this work together. We need godly leaders in the church, in the home, in the workplace, in government. We need godly leaders. But unless the vision of what God wants to do is imparted to others, the work won't get done. I want you to see, we all have a part to play in this. Every single person in this room right now does have a role to play. I really want to challenge you to also broaden your understanding of leadership. Because I think for many of you, when I speak about leadership, you immediately think of a formal position. Maybe one of the elders of the church. Maybe one of the life group leaders. One of the worship leaders. Maybe somebody's graduated to wear a red t-shirt. It's like certain people are given badges or clothes to wear and they get to do all the leadership. But I want to challenge that whole notion of leadership. I want to see that every single person in this room right now is already exerting leadership in some context. And God wants you to use that leadership energy to point other people towards his priorities. In other words, the example of Nehemiah here relates to you. We're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a leader though. 
that no one's given me a title, no one's given me a position in the church. It doesn't matter. There is still some context in which you are influencing others. Might be you and your brothers or sisters. You get to influence others in your family. Could be you as a parent. I want to ask you, what are you leading your children towards? What are you inspiring your children to do? Might be in your life group. No one has said you're the official leader, and yet your words and your example is either going to inspire others to do greater things for God, or it has the potential at least to start dimming their passion for God. Isn't that a sobering thought? Some of us inadvertently, unintentionally, use our leadership, use our influence to lead others away from Jesus. Some of us use our influence to point others towards getting excited about things in this world that lead to death instead of using that influence to point others towards the hope that's found in Jesus. I want to urge you to be a godly leader wherever God has placed you. You may not be all that confident with words. You might never see yourself standing up in front of other people, but at least let your example point others towards God. That's what Nehemiah did. He pointed people towards what God had done. And I think we can all do that. We can point out what God's doing in our life. We can point out God's priorities to others. We can begin to stir faith in the people around us to live for God's glory. We can remind others that living pure lives is important. We can speak the truth of God's word to one another. Just so many examples, so many ways you can lead others. I just want you to see the key part that you can play in the mission of advancing God's cause in the world. Don't wait to be given a title. Don't wait for a specific role. Don't wait for an official invite. God wants to use you right where you are, at your school, as a student, on your campus, as a mother, as a father, as an older person, at your place of work. Wherever you are, you do have influence. Use it to point others towards God's priorities. That is the third and final word I want us to focus on. And that's mobilization. Mobilization. For all our good intentions, the work of God will not be accomplished unless the people of God are mobilized. I want you to see that every person, I've been underlining this message already, I'm going to keep on saying it, every person has a part to play in the greater work. It's not just about a few great named leaders. God's work in the church is all about His Spirit working in and through all of us, working through all of our unique gifts, all of our individual capacities and skills joined together in the bigger work, all mobilized for the mission. And what that means is that we each need to take our place 
in the work that God is doing. We see this amazing picture, don't we, in chapter 3 here, of God's people being mobilized together. Now, I know that as I was reading it, some of you were getting really very concerned that I was actually going to dare to read the entire chapter. You don't need to own up to that. The longer I kept going, he's not, is he? He's not going to keep going. You Stop! You may be hearing all those names, and you were thinking, what's the significance of this for me? And yet there are some important things I want us to just note about our own participation in the church and what the church is supposed to look like. First of all, what we saw in this passage, what I want to flag up to you, is there is tremendous diversity. Just notice the different kinds of people working on the wall. It wasn't just the builders or a particular family. No, everyone was engaged in the work. The priests, the civic leaders, children, goldsmiths, perfume makers. They were all involved in building the walls. You know, this kind of diversity is what makes the church so strong and so powerful. Our goal isn't for all of us to be the same, clones of one another. No, our goal is for all of us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and guided by the Word of God to become more like Jesus. And then going away and expressing that in all the various diverse ways that God has called us to work for His glory. We're not all trying to be the same, but we do all need to be engaged in the same work, using our different gifts, our different skills, our different perspectives. Second thing that strikes me here is that in this passage, some of the people worked on the wall directly opposite their house. And that's great. You can kind of see the logic in that. They'd care about the strength of the wall across from their own home. There's a certain self-interest that's going to be at play here. There's nothing wrong with that. We also see that there are people who were building the wall who didn't even live in the city. In verse 2, we see that the men of Jericho were involved. Verse 5 mentions the men of Tekoa. Verse 7 refers to the Gibeonites. In other words, people who lived some distance from the city were coming in and traveling along to help rebuild the walls. Translated into our context, we should be interested in the strength of the church even when that area of the church has no direct benefit for us. It's like you want the church to be strong, even if it's not your church. Maybe you're praying for the church in another part of this city or this country or another nation. You may never set foot in one of those meetings, but you're still praying for them. Or maybe you're a part of this church, And you care about a certain ministry in the church, even though it might not directly benefit you. I don't know. You might be single and have no kids of your own, and yet you are willing to commit to helping with the kids' work. Just to say, we do actually have some needs in that whole area right now. At this site, we don't have so many kids, but we've got loads of volunteers to help with the kids' work. In our Lordswood site that meets earlier than this meeting, we've got loads of kids and not enough leaders to make it all happen. 
maybe you can invest some of your time and some of your skill to serving in the other site to help the kids work there, even if you have no direct interest in that area yourself. Or maybe you're busy with your own family, but you're still willing to give time to serve with the work with senior citizens that we do in the church here, a lot of whom, they have no family of their own close by. Or maybe you live in one part of a city, but you're willing to travel to support one of our sites in another part of the city. Sam was sharing about what we're doing at Star City at the moment. What we're praying for is another 30 people to join that work in the north. Another 30 people would enable us to move from meeting on a Wednesday evening to launching a site in its own right on a Sunday. There's a room there that Sam was talking about that would seat kind of 50 or 60 people. Right next to it, there's a room bigger than this room that you get about 400 people in, and we've been offered that room as and when we want it. We need some people who are willing to uproot and go and be a part of that pioneering in that part of the city to enable us to open up that bigger room and serve the whole of the north of the city. You might not live there. You might not have an immediate direct link there, but you could help build in that part of the wall. Now, there is nothing wrong with building a wall right across from where you live. Maybe you're involved with activities that suit your season of life right now. That's great. But let's also have a heart for the entire wall. Let's be committed to what God is doing in the broader church. You know, the phrase that impacts me from this passage, it's a phrase that's repeated over and over again. It's, and next to him, and next to him, and next to him. And next to him were this family, and next to them was this group, and next to them was this person. It, it surely speaks of the incredible partnership that we experience in God's people, the partnership we can experience in the church. And you know what? You need to hear this because we can get this tunnel vision where all we see is our own little life, and our own little preferences, and our own little patch. All I see is my life, and my family, and my ministry, and that's all I'm interested in. Now, we need to see that the part of the wall that we're focused on, that's important, that that can be good. But here's the really important thing to understand. You're going to lose vision for what you're building if you fail to look to your left and to your right and see the people that God has placed next to you. You need to see that your work in your part of the wall only makes sense, only has true meaning and significance when you grasp that God is building something bigger than just you. He's building His church. He's doing a work in the world. And the glory of this work can't be captured or contained or expressed fully in just one person. It's in the breadth of people from every people group, every tongue, every tribe. And the breadth of gifts, all important, all needed, from all different backgrounds and ages. And we're all doing this work. And yet it's connected. I want to encourage you to look up from the work. Look to the left. Look to the right. And remember that what you're building in your life isn't just about you. It's about the people of God. It's about God's wider work in the world. What's your part in the wall? It's very simple. It's you in your life living as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. 
It's you in your life, whether you're married or single, whatever age you might be, living a life worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think of building your part of the wall, I don't want you to think solely of church programs or ministries or meetings. I want you to start thinking of you living your life so that Christ is proclaimed. It's so simple. It's being a person who's submitted to God. It's being a person of prayer. It's being a person who applies God's word to every area of their life. It's extending the forgiveness and grace to others that God has extended to you. It's being a person who so loves Jesus that you want to share him with others that God has placed in your path, in your community, on your campus, in your place of work. It's being a parent who's committed to raising the children that God has entrusted to you to love and obey him. If you're married, your marriage is a crucial part of the war, being faithful to the vows that God has called you to keep. It's daily faithfulness in walking pure and resisting temptation as a faithful, devoted disciple of Jesus. And in one sense, you can look at all of that and you can think, well, it sounds great, but how on earth is that going to change the world? I mean, if you just take one individual doing all of that, living out discipleship and faithful participation in the church, any one person doesn't look all that impressive. But when you multiply that by 100 people, by 200 people, by 400 people, by 1,000 people, by tens of thousands across this city, by many, many millions right across the face of the earth, next to one another, all building something, you start to see the magnitude and potential of what God is building. God is building his church. And it's glorious. And we get to be a part of it. And we all, all of us, have a crucial role to play. And on any given day, you may wonder what the big deal is. You may not feel all that significant. But as long as you're building the wall in front of you, that matters. Because where you forsake that part of the wall, where you let it kind of fall into ruin or disrepair, it affects all of us. When your marriage starts crumbling and falling apart, it affects this whole church. When you're not discipling your kids and involved in their lives, it it affects all of us. When you're not making right decisions in your day-to-day life, when you're flirting with temptation, it affects all of us. We have to see the part we're playing. And we have to see the bigger picture of what God wants to accomplish. You know, most of the names on this list in chapter 3, they're unknown to us. And we struggle even to pronounce those names. Yet isn't that a wonderful picture of how God works? He uses people who are seemingly insignificant and will be soon forgotten. But he uses them to accomplish something that will last into eternity. There have been people, even in the history of this church, who you will never know because they've laboured before you came along. And maybe God's called them to go and serve in another place and in another way. And maybe their names have been forgotten and yet God used them while they were here to build the walls of this church. And right now you are experiencing something of the blessing of their faithfulness in the past. I tell you, I am so incredibly grateful 
for all those who have invested and all those who are investing in this church. And on the final day, at the end of time, all of their names will be read out. Because what we do for Jesus Christ and for his people, it's going to last. It is going to last. It's going to last forever. So let's be willing to inspect the walls. Let's be willing to acknowledge where they're weak. Let's inspire one another to works of service. Let's all get mobilised. Let's take our place in the wall and build something that will resound for the glory of Jesus out into eternity. That's what we're about in this church. And it's glorious. And it's all for Jesus. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to pray and then we're done. First of all, earlier on, even as we're worshipping, Johnny brought that prophetic word about us opening our mouths and opening our hands to receive from God. And right now, I believe God is wanting to come and place some gifts into our hands. And maybe you've been listening to what I've been saying, and you think, well, I still don't know what part I could play. Even working across from where I live, I'm not even sure what that part of the wall looks like. Those who are willing to open themselves to God, whether it's opening their hands, their mouths, to receive from God. If he's here, just very quickly, he's going to come and give gifts to you. So I want to pray, Holy Spirit, you'll come with fresh gifts for us. You know the gaps there are in the walls of this church. Thank you, your design is to raise up people to plug those gaps. I pray for those who are struggling to know what role they could play, what part they could play, what gifts they have. And I pray by your Holy Spirit you'd fill their hands right now. I pray you would increase, you would stretch gifts that are already there. I pray you would enlarge capacity to work for you. I pray you'd stir fresh passion and vision and faith, courage, boldness, tenacity, perseverance to keep on going, keep on building. Holy Spirit, I want to ask you, give gifts. You, you scatter them abroad to men and women, young and old, children as well. I pray for fresh gifts from you to serve in this work, this great work you've called us to in our city in this day and age. I want to call you to start stepping out, trying new things, putting to work some of the things that maybe God has given you or maybe you want to receive from God. Get to work. We commission you to work. And then as we draw a close, I want us to end with intercession. I want us all to cry out to this God of heaven who's about a great work. I want us, like Nehemiah did, to cry out to him to rebuild the walls in this city, to restore the church in this city, to bring hope to this city. Oh, particular areas, campuses, communities, groups of people, social contexts you want to see God work in. Maybe there are friends of yours you want to pray for. Maybe there are ministries you want to see up and running. Let's together, just for a minute or so, cry out to the God of heaven that he'd work and do something great in our city.